In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 6, verse 8 through 7, verse 53. Witness the brave and faithful Stephen, one of the seven chosen to serve the early church, step into the limelight, armed with grace and power and wisdom. And as he performs miraculous signs and engages in a profound debate, his words and actions attract attention, both good and bad. Accused of blasphemy and hauled before the Sanhedrin, Stephen launches into a sweeping defense, retelling the story of God's redemptive plan from Abraham to Moses, leading up to the advent of Christ. Today's episode then spills into tomorrow's as we witness the explosive confrontation and Stephen becoming the church's first martyr. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Tuesday, July 25th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is made possible by listeners like you, who continue to support the ministry of KFUO Radio. We're also grateful for a generous gift from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF does important work in translating and publishing and distributing Bible-based materials that are faithful to Christ. LHF gives out these materials free to pastors and missionaries and those who need them. So to know more about what LHF does and how you can join them in this important work, have a look at their website at lhfmissions.org. Now, this morning, please join me in welcoming my guest. He is uh, brand new to the show with me as a host. I'm sure he's been on before. It's the Reverend Dr. Mike Middendorf, Professor of Theology at Concordia University in Irvine, California. Uh, good morning, Professor Middendorf, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Good morning, and thank you. Great to be with you to talk about a great chapter of the Bible. Excellent. Well, as I said, uh, this is your first time being on the show with me as the host. At least I'm pretty sure. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's okay if I'm wrong. I've been on other programs there. I can't keep track of all of them. I know issues, et cetera, a number of times (laughs) and uh, others, but it's always always great to, uh, to be able to share the Word of God with the people on KFUO. Sure. Well, this is your first time being on my show, and what I like to do, and the reason I bring it up is because uh, for those who don't know you or haven't heard you on many of those other shows, perhaps just take a moment and share a little bit about who you are with the listeners. Uh, Sure. Grew up in Minnesota, was blessed to be a product of Lutheran schools pretty much all the way through, a graduate of Concordia St. Paul, then... uh, Worked there for a few years in admissions and actually taught Greek one year, so that uh, launched me on to seminary. Uh, I say I did the slow learner plan. I stayed there seven years. I got my Master of Divinity and then also a doctorate in uh, Romans 7 was my dissertation. Uh, then parish pastor in Jamestown, North Dakota a couple of years, caught at, taught at Concordia, Texas, and I've been here at Irvine since 2001, basically teaching uh, courses in the Bible. Excellent. Well, glad to have you on the program. Another thing I like to have guests do is before we dive into our text appointed for us today, would you please lead us in prayer? Sure. And I'd like to launch off of the last verse of yesterday, the word of God spread and the disciples increased. That's an awesome thing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And as it increased and as the disciples multiplied greatly in the early church, we pray that it would be so in our own lives And in our own day, today we thank you for witnesses of Stephen particularly, 
who rehearsed the whole story of the Old Testament for us, who tells us you have always been a God who rescues and sends deliverers to your people. Above all, ultimately, he points to Jesus, our rescuer, deliverer, savior, your word made flesh, full of grace and truth in his name. We pray, may your spirit also lead us as we get into your word this day. Amen. Amen. So, yes, that is actually the last verse of yesterday's. Uh, the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of even the priests became obedient to the faith. That, that really segues into Stephen. Stephen, one of those seven chosen to help wait tables, so to speak. And we're told in the first few verses, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cis, uh, Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So that's the end of verse 10 of our text for this morning. So just pausing there, Stephen is one of these seven, these uh, Hellenistic deacons, I suppose, who have been chosen to help assist with the distribution of the poor uh, and the widows. And yet we see Stephen here, it, the, the scriptures describe him as being full of grace and power, doing signs and wonders, kind of like the apostles. Um, how is Stephen's role different from that of the apostle? I thought that they were dedicating themselves to these doing the works and proclaiming the word, and he was to be waiting tables. What do we understand about Stephen? Yeah, well, he's clearly a, a gifted man. Uh, earlier in verse 5, he's full of faith in the Holy Spirit. So that's, of course, uh, one key. And then as you started in verse 8, full of grace and power. So obviously this uh, is coming from God, and perhaps then we shouldn't so much identify his role earlier in the chapter as something that limits uh, what he can do or speak, but clearly the apostles are set apart in a special way uh, for proclaiming the word of God. And as Stephen takes on that role of making sure food is evenly or uh, lovingly distributed uh, to all in need, that uh, he still has the gift of the spirit, uh, faith, wisdom. And so he too is empowered by that spirit uh, to speak just profoundly here in a few minutes. We'll, we'll hear his speech, but also to do you know, the kind of works that Jesus did, that Jesus gifted to his apostles, and that he also is able to do in that same spirit. I like the translation here that as he's discussing these things with people, and we get a list of some of the folks who, you know, haggled with him a little bit, it says in verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. I, I like that, this withstand. It, 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 it sort of draws me to the gates of hell cannot, you know, uh, withstand the church's attack. And so we see here, too, that he's proclaiming the word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Plenty of pretty important people and uh, prominent people in these areas are resisting what he's teaching, but they could not withstand the wisdom. Um, I, th I think a lot of us, uh, we're called to be Stevens in this world where so many people are are denying the word and they're denying the clear testimony of Christ. And so we worry, we say, well, gosh, we're not going to be able to know what to say, or I don't know how to convince them. It's not about convincing them. It's about proclaiming the word as Stevens doing. Wouldn't you say, brother? 
Right, and as long as that's uh, rooted in the word of the Lord growing in the spirit um, and the faith and grace he's received from God, that, that then empowers him to speak. And it's amazing, this diverse group of uh, synagogue uh, people who are apparently former slaves, but a diverse group of people from North Africa, from Egypt, Alexandria, from Cilicia, which ironically is going to be Saul Paul's hometown in Asia. So they're there in Jerusalem, but he is able to uh, speak to a wide variety of peoples. And uh, as you said, right, literally, they're not able to stand against what he's saying uh, because of the wisdom and the spirit with which he speaks. Well, when you can't counter truth and you can't withstand the wisdom and spirit of someone, well, the enemy will then just make things up. And that's what happens next. I'm going to read verses 11 through 15. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Okay, brother, pausing there. So, yeah, they, so they can't, conf they can't withstand his theological rigor and his spirit-led testimony, so they just make stuff up. Not all of it's made up. Some of it's just from their perspective but they basically falsely accuse him of being blasphemous. Right, kind of three charges come up against him. That's the first one, against Moses and against God. Interesting. And, you know, you can see this in some of Jesus' claims when he says, before Abraham was, I am. They pick up stones to kill him, uh, even though he is witnessing to the truth. When he says in John 10, I and the Father are one. Uh, again, he almost gets stoned. Uh, accused of blasphemy, claiming to be God, but if he's either blaspheming or he's telling the truth. And so Peter uh, Stephen's witness to Jesus uh, may have been heard by them as blasphemy. Uh, but again, we know that in Christ, it's the truth. The second one against this place, uh, probably a reference certainly to the temple. And again, you have echoes there of John 2.19, when Jesus is walking by uh, years earlier, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Uh, sounds like he's literally going to destroy the temple, but then the disciples now through the Holy Spirit realizes if they're echoing that charge uh, from the lips of Jesus, that it was actually Jesus' body destroyed and raised on the third day, and then the second or the third charge is against the law or later against the customs taught by Moses. That's an interesting one. It could be uh, about the Old Testament customs of Sabbath worship and holy days and foods and purity laws uh, where Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, kind of transcends those that Jesus declares all food clean. So in a sense, in and through Christ, again, there's, I guess some basis that could be true, but is being misunderstood and then falsely uh, accused of Stephen. And perhaps that last, the customs taught by Moses, could be the oral law that they attributed to Moses as well, but then came up with all those extra rules and regulations, setting aside the commands of God, as Jesus said, 
to adopt these traditions of men. So in any case, kind of a threefold charge. You can see where some of it is perhaps rooted in truth, but they are using it obviously to attack and accuse uh, Stephen, uh, clearly rejecting Jesus as the Messiah uh, before this same council or Sanhedrin uh, not all that long ago. Yeah, I think a lot of what they're saying is actually one of those things where you could say it's technically true, but then, like, as you pointed out in verse 13, it says they set up false witnesses. So how can they say true things and also be false witnesses? And I think that's a lesson for us today, because just because something might be technically true doesn't mean you're not twisting it in such a way to bear a false witness. Uh, which is, I, I believe, why we are encouraged to put the best construction on things. <laughs> because even with true information, uh, because technically the, the things that he's proclaiming are against that holy place, if the holy place is now with God, or uh, the, the misinterpretation of Jesus and the, you know, tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it. You know, all of these things are technically true, but they're being used against someone uh, in a way that uh, makes it bearing false witness, something for, I think, for all of us to remember. But then verse 15, I think, stands out because they're all looking at him. And as they look at his face, it was like the face of an angel. I mean, I'm thinking like Moses after he's visiting with God. Why do you think Luke is telling us about this particular, this face of an angel thing? Because if I recall correctly, I don't really think that comes up again. Uh, this would be great to have a video and an audio recording of this whole scene in the speech to follow to see exactly what uh, that's referring to. But obviously, uh, the author's indicating there's something in his appearance that um, is godly, is innocent, is pure. And so that as he faces those charges, again, I liked how you said it, kind of twisting truths, particularly about Jesus, in a way to attack this uh, spokesman for God that he appears um, in a special, unique way that stands out amongst them, I guess you would say, in his innocence against those charges. I suppose that makes sense. Yeah, it's hard for us to really understand what's going on, but it's just interesting that that's added because, you know, if they saw and his face was like the face of an angel, especially if it's, you know, like a la Moses— then you would think that they would react to that in some way. And yet they don't. In chapter 7, verse 1, it continues. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said. Now, I'm going to pause right there in the middle of that first verse, or that middle of that second verse. You know, um, what comes next is a long recounting of God's activity throughout history. Uh, and it becomes, uh, it's interesting, and I'm not sure exactly how to divide it up, but I'm going to read it, brother, in the chunks that the ESV gives us in terms of uh, their, their paragraphing. So here we go. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him 
though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and inflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. That's the end of verse 8. Before we lead in now to him talking about the patriarchs, so brother, he they say, are you telling these lies or these mistruths or this misinformation or fake news that we've presented against you? They said, are these things so? And Stephen doesn't address the charges so much as he just <laughs> begins at the beginning. Well, not quite the beginning, but he begins with the, the father Abraham. Uh, what is Stephen's approach here? What is he doing? Uh, very similar. Uh, you get these speeches in the book of Acts, right? Uh, you covered Pentecost with Peter. You're going to get Paul in Acts 13, also in a synagogue. Here, Stephen before a Jewish audience. I think as far as witnessing, he's starting uh, with common ground, right? So these are uh, things that we share in common, the story of Abraham and the patriarchs, and we'll get on beyond that. Um, so I think, yeah, he's trying to connect with them where they are, establishing a commonality that they would agree or building a bridge to connect his witness ultimately to Jesus, not to jump ahead, but that in that Old Testament story. And so I just, I love these places where the inspired scriptures kind of stop and give us a summary of the inspired scriptures. So we're kind of grasping uh, the main points of what we should get out of this story. I teach Old Testament here a lot at Concordia. Uh, Joshua 24 is one chapter where Joshua kind of stops and says, well, here's the point of the story up to this point. Uh, at the end of the Old Testament, Nehemiah 9, uh, Ezra does the same thing and kind of says, well, here's the point of this story, kind of a Reader's Digest version of the whole Old Testament. So we kind of have an inspired explanation of the inspired text so that we're kind of grasping the main things out of it. So um, I just love chapters like this in the Bible and... Um, that's where Stephen starts. So again, I get you know, how we got these speeches. Again, to have some kind of a, a view of this would be great. But I think uh, the key point, A, is establishing common ground, and then uh, B, kind of guiding us who hear the word today into what, what do we pull out of that Genesis, Exodus story? Uh, what's the main driving point of what God is doing in and through Abraham and on from there? You talk about common ground. It reminds me a little bit of the context around the, the Reformation and our presentation of our faith, thinking about the Augsburg Confession, where a lot of it is a testimony to, you know, we've, we're believing, teaching, and confessing the things that the Church has always taught, right? This isn't something new. So I, I join you in seeing that as Stephen begins at the beginning, in many ways it is to say, look, I am not preaching something new. I am not proclaiming mm -hmm. something new. He's going to get to the specifics in a minute, but he begins, as you said, with their common ground. And, and I also, and, and I don't know, I'd be interested to see what you think of this, but what occurred to me as I was reading is that they'd also accused him falsely of, of twisting Scripture, of twisting Jesus' words, of trying to undo the things of Moses. And so in many ways, if he gets up there, 
and he proclaims all of these truths um, clearly from the scriptures, then they're not going to be able to say, well, look, he's this big liar, because then they'd be accusing themselves of, of not believing in the scriptures. So I also see him starting with this idea of, if I'm this big liar, then how can I be so faithful to our history and tradition and what God has done for us? Uh, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. And when, right, the charge against Moses, you're good with his appearance being like Moses at Sinai with his face shining. But too often we think of Moses and we just connect to the law or the Ten Commandments, but right. he's rooting it in the five books of Moses or the Torah. So he's saying, here's what Moses uh, gave to us in Genesis, and we'll go on from there, and that I'm fully in line with what Moses, what God gave us in his word in and through Moses. So yes, I think that's, uh, he's answering the charges in a sense by saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm fully in line with what Moses taught. And Jesus, of course, makes the same uh, claim that Moses and the prophets testify to him. Um, yeah, and I just love what he picks up here, and this is going to come up again and again. We get that God promised in verse 5, and that this God, uh, through Moses, telling us the story of Abraham and the patriarchs, is the God who gives. Uh, and uh, this is going to come up again and again and again, that God, that God of the Old Testament is a promising God, is a giving God, and unfortunately we'll get to the people's reaction to uh, that, but that's the story as it moveth along. Well, let us moveth along, starting with verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. Okay, pausing there at the end of 16. So, I mean, I know we're going through this Old Testament history. Uh, he's, he's connecting that, that he believes and proclaims the same thing that they do, that commonality that you talked about. I, I feel like, though, what's surprising to me, I should say, is what's missing. And, and I, don't, I don't hear any evidence of the Sanhedrin or anybody in it saying, yeah, we know this, or, or don't quote to us mm. the scriptures, we know what they say. You see, the way Luke is presenting it is he goes through this kind of uninterrupted, but I wonder what the Sanhedrin thought. Like, like I just don't see this them patiently sitting by while he recites to them things that they already know. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's interesting, because at least the false witnesses already have it in against him. Um, does he get a fair hearing? I guess as as Luke lays this out, he kind of does. Um, maybe they're going to, well, where are you going to go with this? Or are you going to get off the rails somewhere and we can trap you in your own words? 
Uh, but this is, uh-huh. yes, quite a long written speech, at least for us to ponder. And yes, what, what are they thinking? Well, we're going to get to their ultimate response, but that's when uh, uh, Stephen points the story to something they obviously don't want to hear. Um, yeah, but he keeps he keeps going uh, with Joseph, and this is kind of where he's going to drive this. Joseph was actually a deliverer sent to rescue the people from slavery. That's how that section ended. But his brothers were jealous of him, rejected him, sold him into slavery, uh, and that's kind of where uh, Stephen's going to drive the story as we continue on. But in the midst of that, you get verse 10 that God gave again for the third time, gave Joseph literally grace and wisdom. Oh, yeah, that's like Stephen, who is full of grace and wisdom. So there's connections being made here uh, between Joseph and Moses, ultimately Jesus, and perhaps even Stephen, uh, who are going to be rejected by those who claim they hear and believe and share this same story. Well, and also I think what is very interesting, at least to me, is that as he begins this story, he begins with them being uh, sojourners in a land, being uh, enslaved. And of course, he's speaking to people who, while they have some autonomy, they're still under the oppressive thumb of Roman government. And then they certainly can connect with the fact that while they're in the their land, they don't really have the ownership of it like has been promised. And then you move on to this idea of jealousy. So I, I see a theme coming up where he's not only giving them this basis by which they agree, like we all agree in Old Testament history, but he's he's reminding them, you know, you know what it's like to be in slavery because that's where you are now. Oh, and jealousy, that's interesting. Perhaps you should think about the fact that maybe you're just jealous of the Christ and that sort of thing. So I, I also see a, like a subtext here where he's trying to connect their current situation to uh, Old Testament history. And, and, and also what you were saying earlier struck with me. They're very likely letting him speak and ramble on because, as you pointed out so rightly, they're probably eager for him to say something wrong. That way they can then just fully accuse him of not even knowing the scriptures. Uh, but yeah, lots of stuff going on here, even though in some ways it's just a rehashing of what we heard in uh, the Old Testament. Right, and all that's very common in the in the ministry of Jesus. He's often speaking and they're just listening and let him talk to try to trap him in something. So this kind of witness of uh, Jesus being carried on by the apostles and Stephen and uh, yeah, then, uh, yeah, the other point you made, right, that uh, when Jesus is talking in John 8 and they're saying, well, we're sons of Abraham, we've never been slaves to anybody. It's hello, <laughs> right? Slaves to Pharaoh, slaves to the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, now the Romans. What are you, just think about it, guys, kind of like you're saying. Oh, absolutely. And then and I just, that rejection, you talk about Jesus, too. That rejection of Jesus is what Joseph experienced as, as a type of the Christ in this way, where he was rejected by his own brothers. And so, you know, if if these guys are really teachers of the law, as they claim, or religious authorities, as they are, then I, I think that they cannot they cannot miss the the subtle connections that Stephen is making between Old Testament history, or, or I guess biblical history and what is happening in these last days with Jesus. Uh, he, he's really making the case that, look, 
this is of God. This isn't something that's new. We're not making this up. Jesus wasn't some crazy guy. This is all uh, consistent with the way God has always acted. Well, brother, uh, let's exactly. just take a few yeah. moments. Uh, sorry, I, I, we're up against a break, so let's take a moment, uh, and we'll come back. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, folks, don't go anywhere. We will keep on going through this chapter when we return. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend Dr. Mike Middendorf, Professor of Theology at Concordia University in Irvine, California. Folks, Thy Strong Word is always a nice companion as you're studying the Scriptures or devoting each day on God's Word. You can tune in to us in St. Louis at AM 850, but if you you just quite, you know, can't reach that signal. Don't worry about it. You can subscribe to the show using your favorite podcasting apps. You can download the KFUO radio app, or you can just listen whenever you like, live or at your own pace on KFUO.org. And if you want to chat, share some thoughts, or you have any questions, I'm all ears. You can reach me by dropping an email to Pastor Boo, P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E, at gmail.com, or you can also find me on Facebook. Just search for Phil Boo. All right. Uh, I cut you off, sorry, as we went into the break, uh, but, you know, what else do we need to know before we move into the next section? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I go through this in Greek and what words kind of keep popping up. And I think first and foremost, right, Stephen's about a God who promises, shows up a couple times here. And then five times, God who gives, particularly he gives rescuers, deliverers uh, to save his people when they're in trouble. That's a little subtle with Joseph that they were jealous and rejected him. Uh, as we move ahead, it will get much less subtle uh, when we lead into the book of Exodus and the story of Moses, who also is rejected. And uh, we can continue on from there. But there's this pattern that Stephen uh, is going to be laying out that will enrage his hearers ultimately. Yes, absolutely. He's building up. It's uh, he's slowly boiling the frog, as they say. Well, let's keep on going, starting with verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, 
and he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would not, oh, sorry, would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why did you do wrong to each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want, me to ki do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. All right, pausing there at the end of verse 29. Uh, once again, we see hints of where he's going. He's not only making these common confessions with them as he retells God's salvation history, uh, but he's now also talking about a people who are rejecting yet another Savior, this time Moses, and how they didn't believe that, uh, that he was there for their salvation, just as, of course, uh, Stephen's listeners don't believe that Jesus came for their salvation. Right. So where he's uh, driving this story, what he's pulling out of it as he rehashes it is becoming uh, more clear here than it was uh, with Joseph. So I love verse uh, 22. Moses, right, was in much wisdom. Oh, like Stephen, uh, he was mighty in word and works. Uh, and that's Luke 24, 19. Jesus, the Emmaus Rhodes disciples, they was a man mighty in words and works. So this same kind of Moses figure is pointing to Jesus and verse 25 exactly. Uh, Moses thought that you'd realize that God has sent me to save you, right? God's given you uh, salvation. But again, the key of verse 27 is who made you? So the same kind of God sending, God giving, God rescuing, God sending deliverers, and Moses even, whom they claim to follow, is one whom the people in Egypt rejected and that same pattern uh, follows. Well, and let's continue with Stephen's speech then, verse 30. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is Moses, who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. 
This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. And our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile, uh, Babylon, beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. And we're going to pause right there. We can obviously keep going. But he really is starting to make it clearer and clearer, less and less subtle, uh, what's going on. They accused him of speaking against Moses. And now he's spent however long this took to preach, uh, this amount of time proclaiming God's work through Moses, but including reminding them of the rejection that even Moses experienced. I definitely am starting to see the connection. Go ahead, brother. Yeah, no, this is uh, a very uh, stark. Again, verse 35, you get these very Christ-like terms. God sent him as a ruler and redeemer. Um, and you denied, rejected him. So clearly where he's driving this is uh, becoming more and more obvious. Um, a lot of just stuff. A very interesting thing is that uh, the burning bush there. So he's kind of rehashing the early chapters of Exodus. Uh, it just struck me that uh, at the burning bush, uh, an angel, an angelus, a messenger spoke. And Well, it was God speaking. Well, it was an angelus speaking. Well, it was God speaking or a messenger angelus speaking. Uh, just interesting kind of little tidbits to the story. Uh, and we can, of course, uh, view that as, as perhaps a messenger. But I think that Christ is that messenger. If you want to do pre-incarnate Christ, that that's actually speaking at the burning bush with Jesus uh, identifies himself as the speaking of God all the way back there. But uh, anyway, yeah, the main themes running the story is just Moses was at even Moses, right, whom you uh, are so attached to, was rejected by the people, even though God gave him to save and rescue you. And then at the end here, the horrible golden calf idolatry, even right there at Mount Sinai on the way out of Egypt, uh, very reminiscent, actually, there, the last verses you read of, of Romans 1. I did the Romans commentaries in the Concordia series, and it's very reminiscent of Romans 1, that God lays out evidence of who he is clearly here before the people who came out of Egypt in the Exodus, yet they turn and instead worship things they have made with their own hands uh, in verse 41, and then God kind of gives them over to go down this destructive path they have chosen for themselves because of their rejection of God and his saving work. He's really making the connections there that history repeats itself, and it is repeating itself right there in their presence as they reject Christ and, of course, the disciples that Christ sent out. 
Uh, I want to take a step back in my reading. I want to go back to verse 42. This is right after the idol uh, was made, and Stephen continues, But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you have made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Uh, let's pause there before we get to him dropping the hammer in 51 and 52 and 53. But yeah, right. he now he's addressing, it seems, holy places, right? Because they accused him of, 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 you know, sinning against the holy place or speaking against their holy place. Um, suddenly I'm seeing holy places here. I know it's deeper, but also even on the surface level, he's reminding them that a place is holy because of Christ, not because of any other reason. Right, and that's going to get into their view of the temple, where they, remember, accused him of speaking against the temple. Uh, and uh, I think their view is kind of, we've got God in a box, we control the temple, therefore we control access to God, therefore we kind of control God. And it's like, no, this has never been this way. Uh, where you started there, he, he jumps ahead to the prophet Amos, but Amos uh, quoted there in verses 42 to 43, said, well, no, 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 remember back in the wilderness where you had this tent of meeting, this tent of witness to worship God, and what were you doing instead? Uh, Amos looks back, he's around 700 BC, as the northern kingdom is about to go into exile to Babylon, uh, to Assyria, and he just recounts that you weren't worshiping God properly at the place of the tabernacle in the wilderness, you were worshiping false gods. Uh, I just love how Greek often answers the question for you. Uh, verse 42, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? And Greek introduces that with a, no, you didn't. So the right. answer is clear that, no, you weren't worshiping God properly there. You haven't been since, even though, again, you got the story. We get Moses, then Joshua, down to David, down to Solomon. Um and so, again, just going down the Old Testament story and, again, pointing out that God keeps giving. He gives a place where he will dwell among them uh, in the tent of meeting in the wilderness, in the temple uh, that Solomon built was to be a place of God's presence among his people to bless them. But you don't restrict God. Um, God doesn't dwell in houses made by hands. There's Isaiah 66 quoted right where you quit, uh, very much in line with Solomon when he dedicates the temple. This is an awesome place for God to give his blessings to us. 
but we can't put God in a box. He's the creator of the heavens and earth. He he cannot be confined to this space. He's a God uh, who who blesses us by coming to dwell among us for our good, not in any way to limit God's presence or God's activity. Yeah, and he really points out an inconsistency in their behavior, too, because he's saying, not only do I and you share the same historical realities and same God and everything else, but you forget your own scriptures. He quotes Solomon, um, or he talks about basically the fact that Solomon built the temple, and you're disrespecting Solomon because he himself recognized that no physical building could really contain Yahweh. So being the gatekeepers to God by means of the temple, he's basically telling them they've missed the point. God dwelling among his people, whether in tabernacle or temple, is all pointing to him dwelling amongst us in Christ. And then he drops the ball, or sorry, yeah, he not drops the ball, he drops the hammer is what he does. In verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels, but did not keep it. That's the end of our text for today. But, you know, it's interesting. We might, uh, thinking about the own ways we proclaim the word or preach or even witness to uh, friends and family, uh, very rarely do we end it with, you're a stiff-necked person, uncircumcised in heart, and you're resisting the Holy Spirit. Of course, I don't know. I grew up down south. I heard plenty of those sermons. But we Lutherans typically don't end it that way. Um, you know, what's his approach here? I mean, has he just sort of been overcome by by the, the, the disrespect and drama that they're showing? Or is it—I I don't know. It just seems a little out of place with him recounting history and now suddenly just kind of saying, hey, you guys— are all the bad people in this story, you're continuing to be the bad people in the story. I don't know. How do you take it, brother? Yeah, it's not a, may the peace of God, which passes all your hearts and our minds keep your right. <laughs> um, uh, similar to, again, Acts 2, the Pentecost story, right? Uh, let this, let all Israel be assured that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. So what should be the response? You know, on that day, they're cut to the heart. And uh, what should we do? And then you get to repent and be baptized. I, I mean, is Stephen uh, hoping for a response like that uh, in front of the Sanhedrin? Uh, again, some of the members certainly uh, involved in having Jesus handed over to the Romans to be executed. Perhaps even the high priest there in the first verse could still be Caiaphas, perhaps. Um, you know, I always hope that in proclaiming the word, even when it's the harsh condemnation of the law here, we would say, uh, is to drive people to repentance. On Pentecost Day, of course, that happened. Um, here, as you go on uh, next time, not what happened, but, you know, you, you kind of, man, does Stephen want them to understand, yeah, we've always been like this, and so Joseph was mistreated, and Moses was mistreated, but God kept giving, God kept sending, God kept fulfilling his promises, 
He gave us the temp tabernacle where he lived among us. He gave us David. He gave us Solomon, Joshua, same name as Jesus, led us into the promised land. Maybe we should rethink this one whom the prophet spoke about, right? Uh, your fathers received these things from God and rejected them and ultimately uh, killed the one that the prophet spoke about, the coming the righteous one. I, I like that title for Jesus. Um, could you be cut to the heart and repent and receive? I think yes, but as you go on tomorrow, that, of course, is not uh, what's going to happen. So I hope Stephen's hoping for the best and hasn't like lost his temper and kind of speaking in rage, but rather uh, trying to draw them to see this pattern and then to realize who this Jesus was, whom, whom uh, he is the righteous one that God has sent to be the Savior, the Rescuer, the Deliverer, just kind of has been God has been uh, doing for us, his people, throughout time. Yeah, I do think that it's—I think it'd be easy for us to read into him losing his temper. And, you know, and, and if he did, if he did, then I'd, I'd think that's fine. He's not sinless, right? And he's passionate about what's going on. I do think there might be a little bit of evidence, though, that even his language of stiff-necked people and uncircumcised heart, as harsh as that would be to their ears, was probably intentional, right? I'm thinking of Exodus 32, right? Yahweh says to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. In Deuteronomy, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So I think as he's relating the history of God's activity amongst his people, he's now accusing them using the words of God, right? It's not me, Stephen, who's accusing you. Remember the history. Remember what God said. Now hear this applied to you. You are the stiff-necked people. You are the ones uncircumcised in heart. And, and essentially, isn't that the law, right? To get up in a sermon, for instance, and say, um, you know, we have Christus uh, Victor sermons where we talk about the sin out in the world that Christ is victorious over. But when you're preaching a Christus Vicar sermon where you're looking at the people and you're saying you're the sinner or we're the sinner, however you want to do it, if you just talk about other people's sins, then they're not cut to the heart. There really is no opportunity for repentance. But so that's why we proclaim the truth. However, it's not a guarantee that everyone's going to receive the law favorably. In fact, I don't. I think it's a guarantee. Almost no one does. Uh, maybe a little later they'll come around. But but we know what happens. Uh, not to get into next uh, week's or sorry tomorrow's lesson, but literally the next verse is now. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And obviously we know that Stephen's the first martyr, so we, we know where it's going. But I think this is also important for us to see because so often when we look at the Bible about proclaiming the word or trying to uh, uh, you know win people for Christ, however you want to phrase your evangelism, uh, we often see these 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 people or these thousands of people coming to faith and being baptized, and we get discouraged. Well, let's head back to Stephen. He proclaims the word of God. He uses the words of God to apply the law. And yet, well, they don't exactly repent or take it favorably, do they, Professor? Right. Very good point there in verse 51. Those are not words with which they would have been unfamiliar knowing their scriptures. Uh, Ezekiel, the prophet, you mentioned the Exodus text, the Deuteronomy text, that, yeah, all of us 
by nature, sinful and unclean, we confess. We got hard necks. We got uncircumcised hearts. Just last Sunday, I preached on Romans 7, uh, which was my dissertation, and, and the way St. Paul is still struggling with you know, the sinful nature that's still within him that he's battling against, that, yeah, sometimes we need to be uh, exposed to what our nature is, and so that we continually know we need this Redeemer, this Rescuer, the Righteous One, Christ who is our righteousness, uh, and so that we continue to recognize our need for Him and rest our faith and our hopes uh, in Christ and not in ourselves. And again, the people of Israel, yeah, good point, right? Too often you hear like the Jews rejected Jesus. Well, no, they didn't. We just started with many priests believed, right? And 3,000 right. on Pentecost, mostly Jewish people. Some, I, I just say they're like the Californians. Some people hear this and reject it. Others hear it, are cut to the heart. Instead of having that hard heart or uncircumcised heart, they uh, receive it and believe it and turn to God. So, right, the apostles, all Jewish, Stephen, Jewish, um, the priests, Jewish. But here you get the Jewish council. Uh, who are going to reject harshly against it, right? You receive this in verse 53, this namas, this Torah, I would say, uh, given to you, and you didn't keep it. You rejected it, Allah, Joseph, Allah, Moses, Allah, the prophets, finally Jesus himself. And then you talk about Jesus, of course, and it's always right to do so. But he uses the argument that Jesus uses, right? Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And going um, now in the light of Christ in these last days, I think we can look and say the persecution against Christ didn't end with the cross, right? It continues even into the church, even into as we strive to go out and speak truth to power or even just speak truth to someone who's close to us, who's misguided. We have to understand that the old sinful nature is constantly resisting the Holy Spirit, persecuting the prophets uh, within its heart. And, and here too, when you go out and you proclaim the word to people, you can't just expect that it's always going to turn out well. As we're going to talk about tomorrow, Stephen becomes the first martyr. And we'll talk a little bit more tomorrow about what it looks like to be a martyr today. Uh, but anything else, brother, as we come to the end of our show that you'd like to share with the folks? No, I would just, uh, again, cherish these chapters where you get kind of the inspired application of the whole Old Testament stories. My college students would love like the Reader's Digest version of what's been going on throughout times culminating in Christ. Um, and so, yeah, and again, there's that twofold reaction to the message of the law, um, hardness of heart or cut to the heart. And I pray that we would continue to take that to heart properly, that we might rejoice in our rescuer, deliverer, Jesus. And as you point out, as we faithfully proclaim this in the world, uh, some will believe and receive, praise God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Others will reject, but that's what happened to Jesus. That's what's going to happen to Stephen, but that's uh, getting ahead of ourselves again. But just an awesome rehearsal of what God has been doing uh, throughout the Scriptures, and again, finally and ultimately in Christ. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. Mike Middendorf, Professor of Theology at Concordia University in Irvine, California. Folks, tomorrow when we come back, we're going to continue the narrative of Stephen's martyrdom. Confronted with Stephen's impassioned defense, the members of the Sanhedrin respond with rage. 
and the first martyrdom in the church's history tragically unfolds. But we're going to talk about that in a lot more. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.